Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Ruth, a subversive romance, episode one. Moab. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to live in the land of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Over the next four Sundays, I want to present to you the story of Ruth. And why I call it a subversive romance will become apparent as the story unfolds. I want you to think of this as like a drama that shows up on Netflix or Hulu or Paramount Plus or Apple TV or one of the, you know, And so don't think of these, I'm not giving you sermons. These are episodes. We are hearing the story of Ruth, a subversive romance, in four episodes. By the way, once we get through that, then we're into the 15th season of Finding God in the Music. So what I'm saying is we're about to have a lot of fun here at Word of Life Church this summer. All right, let's establish some background. The year was 455 B.C. This was 131 years after the catastrophe. The destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and the exile of the people of Israel into Babylonian captivity. This is 131 years after that. Now, for about 75 years, Jewish people have been returning home, coming back to Judah, coming back to Jerusalem. Zerubbabel, the Jewish governor, still under the control of the Persian Empire, has rebuilt the temple. And so the temple is back, it's rebuilt, and the land is beginning to be repopulated. Now, Ezra, a high-ranking priest, and Nehemiah, a Jew serving in the Persian court of King Artaxerxes, have arrived back in Jerusalem to do two things. One, to rebuild the walls. You've probably maybe familiar with that story, to rebuild the walls and to rebuild devotion to the Torah, to the law of Moses, to the teaching. And Ezra and Nehemiah are particularly concerned that as Israel returns from exile, they remain pure from any 
Gentile influence or pagan contamination. And of all the surrounding Gentile nations, none was regarded with greater contempt than Moab. The land of Moab was on the east side of the Dead Sea in modern-day Jordan, but that wasn't what it was known as then. It was the land of the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites. But it was the Moabites that, well, I'll just say it as it was, they were particularly hated by the Israelites. Genesis tells Israel that the Moabites are the product of incest. Right there, they're held in sort of dire suspicion about their origins. In the book of Numbers, we hear the story of how Balak, the king of Moab, hired Balaam to curse Israel. And then when that didn't work, the Moabite women showed up in the camp of Israel as seductresses and led the Israelite men into the idolatry of Baal worship at a place called Baal Peor. So the Torah then contained the most strict prohibition against any possibility of any Moabite ever having any participation in the people of Yahweh. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3. No Moabite shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of their descendants shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. So you understand what's being said there. The law says no Moabite can participate in the life of Israel. No Moabite can belong to the people of Abraham. No Moabite can be admitted into the assembly of Yahweh. But not only that, this applies 10 generations. In other words, if you have a great, 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 great grandparent who was a Moabite, just one. You have one great, 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 I think I got that right, grandparent who was a Moabite. No, you are not permitted. So the law is pretty serious about this, this Moabite business. So how do you think Ezra and Nehemiah reacted when they arrived in Jerusalem and discovered that Israelite men have intermarried with Moabite women? How do you think they reacted? Not positively. Let's just say they were not happy and they decided to do something about it. Nehemiah, I know you're, thinking, you're supposed to be preaching for Ruth. Um, this is background. You have to have this. We can't just jump in. Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 1. Now on that day, they, they being the Levites, on that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people 
And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. That's that Deuteronomy 23.3 that I just read to you. No Moabite even to the 10th generation. We continue. Verse 23. In those days also I, this is Nehemiah speaking, saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, that would be Philistines, Ammon and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke the language of various peoples. So Nehemiah gets back. He's very zealous for the Torah. He wants to maintain their purity. He discovers Israelite men have married Moabite women, and they're having kids. And Nehemiah is saying, half your kids can't even speak Hebrew. And he's not happy about it. They can't even speak Hebrew. Half of them can't even speak Hebrew. Verse 25. And I contended with them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. That's a, that's a bit much there, Nehemiah. They're pulling out the hair. I mean, just stop there. Stop. You're out of control. So you see, there is a deep reaction with Nehemiah. He discovers Israelite men marrying Moabite women, having children together, and he contends with them. Okay, all right, you can contend. Curse them, I don't know. Beat them. And then just, just start pulling their hair out. I see, you know, Nehemiah's kind of this wild guy, you know, jumping on people's back and pulling their hair out. But he's, he's like the governor, so he can't, you know, he's not just some fanatic. He has authority. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons, or for yourselves. All right, so Nehemiah. Nehemiah reminds me of Phineas. This is a story from way back in Numbers. When the Moabite women seductresses were coming over and leading the Israelite men into the worship of Baal. And that's when Phineas killed a Moabite woman and her Hebrew lover to demonstrate his zeal for the Lord. Nehemiah's like that. He's sincere. There's no doubt he's sincere. I do not doubt his sincerity for one second. And he, like Phineas, is demonstrating his zeal for the Lord through religious violence, contending, cursing, beating, and pulling people's hair out. And then he makes them take an oath not to marry Moabites. Okay, fine, but that raises a question. What about those that had already married Moabite women? What about that? I mean, the deal's done, they're already married, they got kids, what about that? Well, the book of Ezra, and Ezra and Nehemiah, you know, they go together. The book of Ezra ends, this is how the book of Ezra ends. Some of you don't actually read the Bible, I actually read the Bible, so I'll tell you what it says. It ends with a list 
of 117 names, you know, exciting reading. It ends with a list of 117, the names of 117 Israelite men who had married Moabite women. And the, the final verse, the, the, book, the book of Ezra concludes with this. All these had married foreign women and they sent them away with their children. Oh, I heard the all go through. Yeah. So there's a list of 117 and by the command of Ezra and Nehemiah, they divorce them and send them and their kids away. All right, well, you can say it nice and neat like that. 117, here's their names, and they just sent their wives and their children away. You can say it nice and neat like that, but you know it didn't go down like that. You know something's left out of the story. I mean, the drama, the pathos, the tears, the anger, the heartbreak, the wrenching scenes, all of that is omitted. That's not there. So we're left to wonder how the story really unfolded. Did everyone comply? Probably not. Did everyone agree with the separation policy of Ezra and Nehemiah? Probably not. And someone decided to do something about it. Instead of a loud protest or a direct confrontation with Ezra and Nehemiah, which wouldn't have worked anyway, someone decided to dissent by writing a subversive romance. And now we're getting back to the book of Ruth. Though it's setting the book of Ruth, is in the time of the judges. The, composi the composition of the book occurs during this very time, the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. That's when it's composed. Thus, in the Hebrew Bible, you will find the book of Ruth at the end of the Bible, the end of the Hebrew Bible, in the, in this, in the writings, right after Song of Solomon. I don't know if you know the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible, Old Testament, the order of the books are very different. Christian Bible then moves it between Judges and Samuel because its setting is the time of Judges. But originally it wasn't located. It was in the writings, not in the prophets. It was in the writings following Song of Solomon. The book of Ruth was composed as a charming but subversive text. The story is an artistic protest, a quiet counter-narrative to the aggressive exclusionary policy toward foreign wives enforced by Ezra and Nehemiah. Set against the background of the book of Judges, Ruth is just the opposite. The book of Judges is by far the bloodiest book in the Bible. The, the, the book of Judges just overflows. It is awash with blood, murder, and mayhem. Ruth has no violence. Ruth is a quiet, gentle romance in a pastoral setting. It's an ivory merchant film, if you will. Some of you know about those. That's what this is. In his zeal, Nehemiah, by his own account, is contending, cursing, beating, and pulling out people's hair. But the writer of Ruth knows better than try to, 
to meet anger with anger, violence with violence. That won't solve anything. Instead, this writer composes a subversive romance that will colonize the imagination with a different way of thinking about Moabites. Something that 600 years later, Jesus will do in colonizing Jewish imagination about how to think differently of Samaritans. So now, we stand before the beginning of the book of Ruth. This book, it's amazing. It has no violence, essentially has no anger. Nobody raises their voice in the book of Ruth. There aren't even any enemies in the book of Ruth. You say, well, then how can there be drama? The enemies are in the audience as the story is unfolding. So it has no violence, no anger, not any real villains, but it's still a story with a mission, so let the story begin. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to live in the land of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Our story begins in the house of bread, which is what Bethlehem means. And in the house of bread, there is no bread. There's a famine in the land. Our story is centered on one family. A man named Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and this couple have two sons, Mahon and Chilion. Now I can say that. I can say our story begins by focusing on a family in Bethlehem in a time of famine. Elimelech, Naomi, Mahon, Chilion. That's just hearing names in Hebrew, and so you'll miss it. So let me retell the story, the introduction to the story, and not use Hebrew names, but use their English meaning. So once upon a time, in the house of bread, there was no bread. And in the house of bread, there lived a family. The husband, his name was God is King. He had a wife named Pleasant. They had two sons named Sickness, and destruction. This is called foreshadowing. When you're introduced to a story where the two sons are sickness and destruction, you're going, uh-oh. So God is king, says to his wife, pleasant, we can't stay here, there's no bread, we got to move, we're moving to Moab. So the family moves to Moab. It's over 100 miles. They have to walk it. They're going now into the east, on the east side of the Dead Sea. They arrive as immigrants. It's hard to do. They're starting their life over. But Elimelech finds work. And they began to live a new life as immigrants in the land of Moab. Things are just getting underway, and tragedy strikes. Elimelech dies. 
You know, sometimes, you know, death is prolonged and you see it coming and maybe people die at a ripe old age and there's a kind of grace in it. This was not that. This was he's alive one day and suddenly he dies. Sometimes it happens that way. Naomi has lost her husband. You, you can feel her grief. She's lost her husband. Now, fortunately for Naomi, her two sons are now coming of age. They are entering adulthood. So she's not, she's not just left on her own. Fortunately, she has these two sons that are coming of age and they can provide for her. And so they, uh, they find wives there in Moab. Mahon, the older one, finds a nice Moabite woman by the name of Orpah. I'll use the English, nape, nape, yeah, like the nape of the neck. That's her name. Why is her name nape? Don't rush it. And then the younger, Chilion, gets married. He marries a nice, lovely, young Moabite woman by the name of Ruth. Ruth means Friendship. So, Pleasant has lost her husband, God is king, but she has her two sons. Sickness marries nape. Destruction marries friendship. She has hope. She's there in the land of Moab, her adopted homeland. She's anticipating that soon she'll have grandchildren and maybe, maybe the cruelty of the death of her husband at an early age will be washed away with the arrival of grandchildren. I know, it's already been foreshadowed. Tragedy strikes a second time. Mahon dies. Sickness dies. Well, I mean, that's, that's clearly that must be how he died. You know, these things can happen. He's healthy, and then he gets sick, and then he dies. Newlyweds. Mahon dies of some, some disease. He's, he dies. Well, she's still got Chilion. Of course, you know what's going to happen. His name is destruction, and he also dies suddenly. I think, you know, maybe it was an accident. Maybe he's working construction, and something happened. But now, a series of three tragedies has just erupted into the life of Naomi. She's lost her husband and both of her sons. So now you have these three women that are just left alone. Pleasant, Nape, friendship, Naomi, Orpah, Ruth. Well, by now, the famine is long ago over in Bethlehem. And Naomi just says, I can't stay here. There's nothing for me here. And this place is just, there's just too much pain here for me. I've got, I've got to go home. So Naomi sets off to go back to Bethlehem and her two daughters-in-law come with her. Orpah and Ruth. They are beginning the journey back home, but after about a day, Naomi just stops. She says, what am I doing? What am I doing dragging you along with me? There's, 
There's nothing that I can give you. You know I love both of you, but go home. Go back to your people. Each of you go back to your mother's house. I pray, I pray you find husbands. And I pray that you'll have a good life. There's no point in you coming with me. And then she kissed each of them. She kisses Orpah. She kisses Ruth. And they begin to cry and they're weeping. And Orpah and Ruth say, no, 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 we're going to go with you. We're not turning back, we're going to go with you. Naomi says, do I have sons in my womb? If I got married today, I'm too old, but if I got married today, and you have to see, they're both they're crying and laughing at the same time. If I got married today and got pregnant tonight, are you going to wait for these sons to grow up? No. There's nothing here for you. Go home. Go home. And Orpah kisses Naomi turns around and goes home. And the last thing that Naomi sees is Nate. Ruth, on the other hand, is clinging to Naomi. Just clinging. And Naomi says, your sister-in-law has returned and gone back to her people and to her gods. And you need to go with her. Go with her. What Ruth says to her mother-in-law is one of the finest pieces of poetry found in the Bible. Ruth's friendship says to her mother-in-law Naomi, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Wherever you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Orpah, Nape, she's a good woman. Let us not think ill of her. There are no bad people in this story. She's done nothing wrong. It's just that Ruth, friendship, is more resolute. And so Naomi and Ruth continue their journey to Bethlehem. Now, for Naomi, this is a return home. For Ruth, this is a pilgrimage into the unknown. Ruth, the Moabite, is acting like Abraham, the patriarch. Ruth, the Moabite, is reenacting the journey of Abraham, the patriarch of Israel, as he journeyed from the east into the land of promise. Ruth, 
Ruth's friendship is imitating Abraham, the patriarch, in her pilgrimage into the land of promise. Well, after a few days of journeying, they arrive in, in Bethlehem. They've been gone. I mean, Naomi's been gone for oh, about 10 years. And she arrives and people are, is, is that, is, that is, is, it, is it you? You've come back? Naomi Pleasant, is that you? Naomi Pleasant? Do not call me Naomi Pleasant. Call me Mara Bitter. Yes, I've come back, but I've not come back the same. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Don't call me Pleasant, call me Bitter, because Shaddai has dealt bitterly with me. Now, I'm not really preaching, I'm just telling a story. But I am going to just pause here a moment and give you one sentence of a sermon. In times of great pain, don't be too quick to assume your story has been fully told. In times of great pain, don't be too quick to assume that your story has been fully told. Ruth 1.22. So Naomi returned together with Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law who came back with her from the country of Moab. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. That's the end of episode one. credits are rolling. Episode two, Bethlehem, drops next Sunday. So today there's, there's no resolution. The story has not yet been told. We're just in the middle of it, really at the beginning of it. So we have no resolution because we've not yet reached the end of the story. Well, today our resolution will be found at the Lord's table. Because the Lord's table is where the story of Jesus really ends. It's a table where everyone is invited. I, even Moabites. I don't care if, you, if you're a Moabite for pure blood Moabite for 10 generations. At this table, you're welcome. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever your history, you were invited to this table. Someone will have bread. They'll say the body of Christ broken for you. It is. Take the bread. Someone will have a cup. They'll say the blood of Christ shed for you. It is. Dip the bread in the cup, partake and receive the gift that Jesus Christ gives to you. In his flesh and blood, he gives you his life. Amen. Stand with me. Let's prepare by first confessing our faith and then we'll confess our sin. Confess with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. 
I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now join with me in confessing our sins. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Amen.